Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello from sunny Southern Florida. This is Ron Coleman. Uh, you're culminating along with me and Brian Cloudis. A little bit of a change of pace today. This is uh, Brian is an actual person who does interesting things um, as opposed to a person who mostly talks about things. Brian is, is, an, is an artistic, is a, is a creator, a uh, person who works in the, in the theater space. And I, I'm going to ask him to talk about his immersive theater work, um, what it means. This is a fairly topical uh, podcast, so we will get along to, to issues. I think that will be of interest to those who are listening. In addition to those who are listening, who will, I believe, be interested in immersive theater. Brian, good morning. How are good you? Good morning. I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm coming to you from Wintry, Virginia. Um, I'm up in the mountains of Wintergreen near Charlottesville, so we got a big snow last night. So I'm jealous of your sunny Florida background. I wonder if the snow you got was related to the torrential rain that we had in South Florida about a day ago. I think it's all kind of connected, you know. <laughs> it turned into snow and came up north. Yes, well, you know, it's um, it's not really for me the the fair weather lifestyle, but when when you're here, when you're in the moment, you do say to yourself, "Gosh, this is this is nice." What, what, why why am I going back up to the north? But once I'm <clears throat> usually once I'm there, I feel no, I, I I do like seasons and all the things, and plus South Florida. Many, many positive things about Florida, but it's just not for me. You like the seasons. I like the seasons, but also I'm a, I'm a man. I'm just a man of the Northeast. You know, of course, the place is lousy with men of the Northeast, especially old Jewish men of the, of the Northeast. All the same. I, I don't think I'll be. Although I know, you know, visiting your mom in the retirement community, which you are now eligible to live in, is a, is a little bit racing. <laughs> 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 Brian, tell me, tell us what's going on. Tell us, tell, you and I have spoken before, of course, uh, but please uh, tell tell listeners about what you do and how you got there. Yeah, so um, I'm a theater producer. I've done theater and entertainment my entire life. Um, I started out like most, you know, people who are directors now as an actor. I spent the early part of my life acting. I actually lived in the Northeast for a good portion. I went to undergrad at Amherst. Um, then I moved to New York and did the New York actor thing for a while. Um, you know, traveled. You mean, you mean you were a waiter? I was a waiter, but hey, I'm actually one of the actors who got employed a lot. So, um, you know. Uh, New York was kind of my hub. Um, I was always traveling for work. You know, I did a Broadway national tour. I did a lot of regional work. Oh, yeah. I didn't. Mean, I didn't mean to suggest you didn't get cast. I meant to say that if you're doing the New York actor thing, you've got to put in your time waiting tables. Otherwise, 
You yeah. have not paid dues. My first job in New York was actually at Bubba Gump Shrimp Company in Times Square. Um, so I can say I put in my dues. And, you know, like I'm from Alabama. It's You can't hide it. And so That's funny. Everybody- that was I was like putting on a character, you know. Um, yes, I'm <laughs> shrimp company, Times Square. I put in my views, um, but yeah, you know, I I'm a Southern boy through and through. And the, you know, the longer I was doing the actor thing, I just realized that I wanted to, you know, be in control of my career. Uh, so I went to grad school and got my master's in theater, and then I started moving into directing and producing, <clears throat> and I started a company outside of Atlanta, and. There- I, I- if you don't mind, I, 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 I'm afraid that we're definitely, I, I, we need, in order to get to the core of what I want to talk about, we're going to come back to this. But you said something very meaningful to me, which was that you're you, you, you were getting cast, you, were, you know, you're having some decent, you know, onto the on-ramp success, getting work as an actor, which is a gigantic thing, a gigantic thing. And yet you recognize that the essence of, tell me if if I'm putting this correctly, the essence of the life of an actor is to, unless you're among very, very few people, and maybe even then, you're never really in control of your career. Not at all. I mean, you can, you know, I had friends who would have their big Broadway break, and then they wouldn't work for years, you know? Right. the, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of like who I am, you know, and like the ups and downs, they're really difficult as an artist. So I knew that if I wanted to have longevity in this career, I needed to have a sustainable lifestyle. And for me, I'm a control freak. You know, I have to be in control of things. And I knew if I wanted to be in control of this career and not just be an actor, I had to be in charge. And for me, that was moving into the directing and producing space. That- an entrepreneurial spirit about myself like I treated my career as an actor as a small business so I knew that I wanted to not just be an actor I wanted to be a theater artist and I wanted to create and be in charge and the great thing about uh, my uh, program uh, my MFA was you know the heads of our program said you're in charge of your career so you know we wrote we directed we produced you know they wanted to create theater artists So it was very important to me to be in charge of my career. And then I really realized very quickly that my true talent was vision, directing, and producing, and being able to see things in ways that other people weren't. So, you know, I quickly realized I was a great actor, but I was a phenomenal director and producer. Um, Now, not not every actor has that option, right? I mean, you know, you and I have spoken before. When I was in college and high school, I was very active as, as as an actor, and I saw what you describe and your, your point about about the Broadway break, and then nothing. That was what I observed: was that unless you become an absolutely iconic figure, of which equivalent to the chances of winning the lottery, but probably involving a lot more uh, moral sacrifice on your part. Um, you can almost never be happy because there's ne- you're never going to get all the roles you want if you're going to even continue to get roles. And, and, and the worst thing that can happen to you is actually have success. Yeah. Be- because and, and I remember even that moment of being able to, in live performances, to, to, to lift an eyebrow and cause 1,100 people to erupt into laughter. And I realized that what 
what a drug this was yep. and how I would not want to be addicted to this drug because the, the, um, the withdrawal must be terrible. But, but on the other hand, I, that whole, this, that whole diversion was, was by way of my saying, I do remember from the world of performing that encountering many actors who aren't, who, who actually can be very, very effective on stage, but who were, how shall I put it? Imbeciles. <laughs> totally. So, so, so you, and they could really be successful. And that's basically everyone in Hollywood put their little opinions and everything. Um, but you were fortunate in that you, first, when you were thinking about your career and you were able to find yourself, get your, get your way to a program that enabled you to find another aspect of your creative your, your will to create in, in what we call theater space. Yeah. All right. So now we're back, back on the main highway. You, you know, you, you, you made this, you made this discovery about yourself and you found out that you're, you were great at one thing, but you were mind boggling at the other thing. You're going with mind boggling. I like that. I like that. All um, right. Go on. Yeah, and you know, also like, um, it, it's funny, the older you get, the, your priorities kind of realign. Um, and, you know, growing up in the Southeast, I was like, oh my God, I never want to live in the Southeast again. I want to be in, you know, the Northeast my entire life. But the longer I was away from my family, you know, I felt that tug back to them. You know, my granny was getting older. You know, she had helped raise me. I miss my mama. I'm a big mama's boy. And then my sister was starting a family and starting to have children. And, you know, I really wanted to be, an uncle and be a part of their life. So, you know, I chose to go to grad school in the Southeast. And, you know, that decision led to me wanting to start a company outside of Atlanta. My sister had moved to the, you know, greater metro Atlanta area. And I discovered this little community outside of Atlanta that was so cute called Serenby. And I felt a, a connection to it. Um, and you know, there wasn't a physical space in that community but I reached out to them. And as an actor, I had done outdoor drama. You know, I'd done this historic, symphonic outdoor drama like Lost Colony in North Carolina. And I mean, that's where theater began, outdoors. So for me, I said, hey, there's not a physical space. Why don't we just start doing this like small scale outdoor theater? And the community was all about integrating art, nature, and people. So I said, this goes in line with your mission. And I started with basically no money. Um, you know, I don't come from a lot of wealth. So for me, you know, I've always looked at art as needing to also be a sustainable business. And I said, we got to sell tickets. If we're not selling tickets, we're not creating something that people want to see. <clears throat> I've never understood this like art for art's sake. You know, if your audience doesn't want to watch what you're producing, you're not producing the right thing. So we started doing small scale outdoor theater and nobody in the area was doing it. And now a lot of people are doing this kind of immersive outdoor theater. But, you know, I did it 15 years ago when it was really on the cusp and we weren't doing like avant-garde experimental theater. We were doing like really mainstream titles that made sense outdoors, like Midsummer Night's Dream, Hair. And we were producing these like really immersive 360 experiences where the second you got out of your car, you were in Woodstock. And you know, it felt like you were in the environment. 
and it blew up like wildfire. I mean, like it, it was a phenomenon. It just blew up. Um, and within a couple of years, you know, everyone across the country was talking about what we were doing outside of Atlanta. So that, so that, you know, you, you answered a question before I, I could ask it, which was, you know, how much, I mean, I'm still, I'm sure there's still some of the answer left. The question of adapting, adapting these scripts or these, the, the production values and just the two shows you gave are an excellent example. Obviously, it's why you gave them um, to an outdoor experience. I mean, if you're doing a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, you have to decide either to try to do all this set work in order to evoke out, being outdoors, or I suppose do it super minimalist and leave it to the audience to imagine everything because it's so relatively hopeless to make people sitting in a dark black box that they're in a, in a sort of enchanted forest. Here you said, let's, let's go with the outdoors. Now, did you end up, you know, running through the obvious productions that lent themselves to outdoor production and then start pushing it into bringing things that are maybe not drawing room, you know, dramas as such, but still not necessarily written for the outdoors and make them make sense being outdoors? We expanded the repertoire, um, but interestingly enough, you know, most shows have an outdoor element. It's really hard to find a play or a musical that doesn't have some type of kind of outdoor element. And then if you really lay into that, like we did, I'll do a couple of examples because I think it's important to kind of, you know, as far as rap, like we did a production of Carousel. And we rented a working fair, you know, and like literally audience members came, they were at the fairs, carousel, and then the musical popped out. We did a production of Miss Saigon, and we landed an actual Huey helicopter at the climax of the fall of Saigon. But then we did things like Streetcar Named Desire, and we created this uh, sort of like shipping cart set outdoors. So the production kind of wove in and out of these like, you know, truck shipping carts. It was very industrial. Um, we did a production of Cabaret and we created this like almost underground Kit Kat club in the middle of the woods. And so you walk into the middle of the woods and you see this like <clears throat> almost felt like Auschwitz from the outside, really scary, really creepy. And then you walk through the doors and it's just the over-the-top, opulent, underground Kit Kat club, you know? So as we expanded and as we grew and also as we got more money, we were able to kind of, you know, build more. But always my mission was, was to use what we had in nature and what was already there and to choose, you know, interesting new locations throughout um, the property. And then, you know, midway, midway through my tenure um, in Atlanta, I had people around the country start reaching out to me because, I mean, at one time I, I was. What, what year are we, what, what year is it now? This, this part of the story. Yeah, so I started Ceremony Playhouse in 2009 and I would say halfway through probably around 2014 is when I had people start reaching out, just emailing saying, hey, you know, would you ever come to Massachusetts or our community and do something similar. We have a really cool environment. Um, and so those emails started coming in. I thought, hey, like there may be something larger than just this model in Atlanta. And also, I mean, I like to make money. You know what I mean? So I was, I was that artist that also, you know, I wanted to monetize what I was creating. 
Um, so I started uh, an LLC version of what I was doing, full for profit, something I would be completely in charge of, Brian Cloudus Experiences. And then I started expanding what I was doing, this model <clears throat> of going into really cool environments and making theater happen and creating these immersive experiences in places that had never done theater before. Um, and that's when my career just exploded. And within a couple of years, I was in 11 states, had clients all over the country. I had a full staff in Atlanta and I was managing, you know, that non-for-profit company. So what are clients? I understand what a theater producer is. I never, I'm not used to hearing one talk about what the, were the services you were producing what, were the, what, what kind of people were the clients or what kind of organizations? So like, um, I'll use a couple of examples, um, like Old Sturbridge Village, which is a historical museum, you know, in Sturbridge, Massachusetts. You go there and there's all these old buildings. It feels like you're walking into a town. So they would contract me to come in and produce a show that came to life on their grounds. Um, I would partner with, say, a ski resort. Um, they would bring me in during their off season, and I did a production of Sound of Music on the mountains of their ski resort during their off season. So, oh, off, off season. So, in other <laughs> words, you didn't have a temperature problem. No, in it, fact, was, you solved their temperature problem, which was that nobody wants to go to their resort in June. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, clients or these venues, they were reaching out to me and bringing me in and I was bringing traffic into, um, you know, their businesses in times where otherwise it would have been crickets. Um, and, you know, people talk. And so like what, you know, we'd have one successful client and then that would, you know, it just kind of exploded. Um, and it, I mean, it was insane. You know, I, it, it all happened so quickly. Um, and, you know, there was this buzz in the, in the national theater community of this guy who was doing these really well-known things like Sleepy Hollow, you know, like Sound of Music, um, like Oklahoma, but really putting this modern environmental twist on them that was making them, you know, topical again. Um, and then I'm sure we'll get to this, but, you know, then 2020 happened, covid then I went through a very public canceling, like, you know, most white male leaders did. Um, and that's when, you know, the shit really hit the fan and, um, you know, when things really changed for me. Wasn't it enough to be in theater? By virtue of being in theater, you're presumptively progressive, presumptively gay, presumptively artistic and sensitive. How did you manage to step on the third rail of, of, of American wrong thing? I mean, I, it's true. We were going to get there. We got there. Yeah, here we are. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I was, I was not very political ever, which is kind of hard to believe because I think people now look at me as this very political, you know, out there conservative theater producer. But... I was not very political until I went through my public canceling. But I do want to rewind a little bit and just tell you about how the theater industry started changing up until that point and how it, it very quickly became something I didn't really recognize. You know, theater used to be this like cool space where nobody gave a crap about politics or your religion. Like none of that mattered. It was this like. Well, well, hold on. Yeah. What what time of what time are you talking about? I mean, there has been certainly an undercurrent of political correctness 
in what gets produced for a very long time, right? I mean, going back to the 80s, uh, you know, all those, all those, um, well, you tell me, I'll, I'll let you answer the question. T t tell me how, how it is that, that it was so apolitical when in fact, there, and I think there really was a lot of political stuff bubbling up. I mean, I think there was always that undercurrent, but, you know, I was also, I mean, I was in the Southeast producing, you know, so it wasn't so in your face. And what I'm talking about is specifically the way my actors behaved in the rehearsal room. You know, we would come into the rehearsal room, we would work, we would be hardy, you know, we were all in this together. You didn't have to sort of walk on these eggshells of offending people. And there wasn't this idea of in the casting pool, you had to be checking all of these boxes. Ah, okay. So we're talking about casting to a large extent. And also you're working with scripts. Correct. That are either hundreds of years old or 75, 50 Maybe you'll tell me you're doing some more, some more modern stuff, but it isn't necessarily a lot of this, um, you know, sort of that door that was opened by all that jazz and then walked through by rent and all the, you know, all the coming to terms with homo my, my, my homosexuality stuff that was done, on, you know, that stuff that is people weren't necessarily asking you to produce anyway. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've always, I always have a heart for the classics and I always say if something's a classic, it's a classic for a reason because it really, you know, withholds the, the, the like stamp of time and it's always going to be somehow current. And but, it's written by dead white men. Exactly. Exactly. How colonized. Um, <laughs> but um, I would say, you know, it was kind of halfway through um, Trump's, uh, you know, first term as president kind of around that like 2018 vibe. I just remember thing, and I was not, I was not political. I, here's the crazy thing, I didn't vote. I did not vote until 2020. So, I mean, that's how apolitical I was. I just did not care. Um, I didn't think it mattered. You know, it was something I was like, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter. One vote doesn't count. But it started creeping into my rehearsal room and I felt the, the whole atmosphere change. I felt as if, I had to start kind of, you know, watching what I was saying. I would offend people because I'm very out there, you know, I'm politically incorrect. Uh, I'm kind of funny and, you know, like I use innuendo. I'm just like kind of out there. And that always used to be fun and people played around, but something kind of shifted, you know, several years ago. And then the whole, the major shift for me was the pronouns. I had actors literally really? forget it they came into the rehearsal room one day and they said you know we really need to <clears throat> sit in a circle and talk about like our pronouns before we really get into rehearsal just so we're all comfortable and this is when like that was very new and i was like i was like what are y'all talking about i was honestly just confused but i was like i went with it and we literally sat in a circle and each actor and these were like just out of college kids you know a lot of these um, kids were and you know they started saying well I'm a, I'm a cis male and like I had never heard that term so funny enough I was like oh well cis maybe that means he's like a femme gay male you know what I mean like I thought it was si <laughs> so he was like I'm cis male and I'm just 
being like, oh my gosh, like they, I'm so old. I'm like 87. I need to be in a, a nursing home. I've just missed this whole thing. And from that point. Well, well actually, no, hold, 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 hold your thoughts again. How is it? Cause, because I, I, you said something that once again, you may have answered my question, but I want to explore it. How is it that you, you're the producer, you're the guy, you're the boss. And all of a sudden cast members are telling you what, here's what we have to do. And I think you answered it by telling me that they were just at, that these attempted to be people who were just out of college. Yep. This is like that story a couple of years ago of the summer interns who presented a list of demands to the company that was hiring as, inter of inter as interns. And the company said, and I don't know if they could get away with this in 2022, but in 2020 or 2019, whenever it was, they said, listen, don't bother coming back tomorrow. We yep. have no use for this, no use for this whatsoever. So here these people are coming out of college with this sense of entitlement to being heard, yes. to being validated. And you're a good guy. You're a good boss. You're a progressive boss. You tend to want to make people happy as long as you can make the profit and, 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 make, and meet the cost. You want people to be happy. So they say, Let, you know, Brian, we want to do this. You say, oh, okay, fine, let's do this. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and for me, like, you know, like, I'm, and here's the thing, you know, I am, I'm a very demanding director. I think it's confusing because people meet me and they're like, oh, he's so cute and sweet and Southern and charming. But I can be a real bitch in the rehearsal room, you know, and I think. If you're and, any good, I don't see how you can be otherwise. Yeah, I, I really push people to their boundaries and not in a hateful way. But I'm going to push you and I'm going to demand excellence because that was the way I was brought up as an actor. You know, I mean, I did the summer stock circuit where we were scrubbing toilets, you know, one second. And then we were on stage sewing our costumes the whole nine yards. So I was always like I was gritty and tough because I thought that's what made really excellent theater artists is if you were hardy. You know, you really had the balls and the backbone to be a strong artist. Um, so that's the way I ran my rehearsal rooms. But I was also very loving and kind. But I was not that director that was going to constantly shower you with compliments and, you know, sit in group therapy and sing Kumbaya and do s'mores on breaks. That was just never me. You know, I was here to make you an excellent artist. And I was looking at the full production. And the one thing I told my actors from day one, I will never make you look busted in a show. So you've got to trust me. And I promise you, you're probably going to work the hardest you've ever worked. Um, but you're also possibly going to have the best experience of your life. That's what I would tell people. Um, and I worked with the same artist over and over again. Um, and, you know, then things started to kind of change. Um, the pronoun thing came in and <clears throat> I did do a pretty progressive woke show, which ultimately was the um, the things that kind of started towards my cancellation. Um, I did a production of Ragtime and um, I love that show. I think it's an incredible story. Um, you know, it tells the Jewish American story. It tells the African American story. And then it tells kind of the upper white crust American story. And then how, you know, in this beautiful way, all three of these groups converge and you see the true melting pot of an American family where, you know, the white leading lady marries the Jewish immigrant and they end up adopting um, the black child. You know what I mean? So I, I always just loved Ragtime. I thought it really told the true American story. Um, but I chose to do that at the time when 
the, you know, theater and America was becoming super woke. Um, and it ultimately ended up backfiring on me. I was just go woke. You cannot go woke enough. And the funny thing about the casting of that show, um, I cast an Asian actress as Evelyn Nesbitt. I cast a Latino actress as Emma Goldman. Because for me, I wasn't thinking, oh, my God, I have to check all these boxes. I just said, oh, this actress, she's the best Evelyn Nesbitt. This actress is the best Emma Goldman. So I, I quote unquote, went super woke with my casting. But here's the thing. When you go woke, you cannot go woke enough. And ultimately, the woke mob just devours you, you know? It's true. I mean, I, one, of, one of my tropes in the... Uh, you know, the internet wars is that there is never a limiting principle on wokeness. There's never, there's no such thing as that's enough. Now we're satisfied. So we're, we're, we're in the world that everyone swore we would never be in, where there's actually a party. I don't mean a political party. I mean a social grouping that has made it legitimate to defend you know, cr criminal, criminal sexual conduct yep. involving children. Um, because you can't put the brakes, and, and there are groups who are trying to put the brakes on it. One of my clients, of course, is Gays Against Groomers. And they're trying to say, you know, you, you, you people are ruining it. You're, you're, you're besmirching an entire, much larger than you cohort of people who are would have been considered to be in, utterly outside of the camp 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, we went from equal rights, non-discrimination, to affirmative action, to, to basically, literally, whites need not apply. That's the world we're living in now. So now you're seeing this come into your world in your your productions, so tell what the what's the mechanics of the story. So you you did this you did this production. You know, I had like all of my shows. It had this really interesting new spit twist. Um, we set it as a full like vaudeville production. It was under a big top in a field, and everything was very theatrical. You know, everyone was on stage the whole time, and you had these different groups. And we put you know each different category like. You know, one group was the stagehand, you know, one group was the leading players. And it was this really epic production. And I mean, it got national buzz. We had people from Disney theatrics coming in to see it. Um, Ken Davenport, a big Broadway producer, he had sent his people in to see it. So there was like this epic national buzz about this production. And, you know, we got through the rehearsal process. It opened. It was a huge critical success. It was selling out left and right. And then I got this email from a cast member um, who I'd also, I'd worked with her on five or six shows. I kind of seen her personally get very progressive and woke. And she sent me this big email, kind of out of left field. Um, and she had sent an email prior to my assistant and we didn't think much about it, but just like bringing up her concerns about the production. And basically her concerns were, I, we didn't have a black person on the creative team. Um, so as a white male, you know, I was telling the, the, the black story 
and she wasn't even black is the crazy thing you know she was the latino actress and she was oh sure she was oh she but at least she wasn't usually it's the white women yeah usually are the most toxic at least she wasn't the white woke person um that basically just pointing out all of the things i had done wrong and that i spent more time with the white female lead than i did with the black lead and that i was ignoring the black narrative in the show um and i got i got pissed off you know what i mean like first of all it really hurt my feelings and second off i was like who do you think you are telling me all this stuff and demanding all this and so you know but then again i ended up talking to her smoothing things over i sent a very kind email apologizing you know because at the end of the day I was like, I don't want people to have their feelings hurt. And the crazy thing is, I got so many emails from people in that show saying, hey, I, I, I'm not on this group. This woman is trying to lead this fight. I do not agree with her. She's looped us in. You know, like, just because I'm a person of color doesn't mean I'm on this crazy bandwagon this woman's creating. And then we just kind of smoothed it over, and that was that. And then a year later is when, you know, everything really hit the fan with George Floyd's death and the huge rise of BLM. And, you know, it happened like wildfire. Everybody is demanded to post the black square. I mean, I posted the black square because we're told to, you know, I issued a statement of, oh my gosh, you know, BCE, Brian Claudus Experiences is a inclusive company. We hired someone to be, I can't remember the title, but it was some fluffy title like diversity, inclusion, coordinator, community builder. I mean, you know, you name it. And then that wasn't enough. And so this actress who had kind of, you know, led this charge against me during ragtime over a year you ago. You just, actress? I don't think you're allowed to say actress. Oh my God, what am I, uh, what is it now? Actor. Actor, actor. everyone's an actor. Yes, I, but, but sorry, but pardon me for not using gender inclusive language. <laughs> So this actor, um, she, they, whatever you call people now, um, she wrote this open letter to me on Facebook, um, basically saying I was this awful racist human. I was a nightmare to work with, you know, and just like tore me to shreds in this. And where, where was she from? Atlanta area. <clears throat> so she was from the Atlanta area. Okay, so she so wasn't prejudiced against you being, you know, a, you know, a, a man of the South. No. Yeah, she, yeah, she's Atlanta area. And um, she posted this, you know, this Facebook post. And then she went out and started basically collecting stories from disgruntled employees that I had worked with. And I've worked with literally probably at that point in my career, at least 3,000 actors. Guess what? Some of those actors hate me. You know what I mean? Guess what? Some of those actors I don't like either. So she then went on this, like, she made this a full-time career. Literally, it became, and this is like a woman who has children and a job, but COVID provided the perfect opportunity for people's crazy to really show because they had so much free time, you know? So then she went on this basic witch hunt of collecting all of these different statements from people who I'd either fired or did not work with or didn't didn't get cast in shows. And first it was racist human. And then it just kind of expanded to I'm just a monster to work with. You know what I mean? 
And I chose not to apologize. I just said, you know what? I know in my heart, I am not going to bow to all of this. Sure, I'm hard, I'm demanding, but this narrative they're creating, it's not true. So I just knew in my heart, no matter what happened, I was not going to do what I saw everybody else in the theater industry doing, like begging for forgiveness for their white privilege and, you know, saying, I'm so sorry, I'm white, I'm so sorry. And I was like, I'm not sorry for any of this, you know, and like, I grew up dirt poor in the sticks of Alabama, so I'm not going to apologize for some privilege because I've worked my tail off to be where I am now. And here's the thing, choosing not to apologize, <clears throat> that's when the storm got super loud. Um, and rather than hiding, I chose to kind of educate myself on like this whole sort of fake news narrative. I started listening to people like Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin, a lot of these people who had kind of walked away from leftist liberal thinking. And I just thought, my Lord, they make so much sense. They just make so much sense. And then I started questioning, why does everybody hate Donald Trump? Why is he this awful villain? And that's when I really realized that I aligned so much more with conservative values and really the Republican Party. And I'll tell you, then when I came out as a Republican and got vocal about that, that's when I became an absolute Nazi. You know, that's when they were like, oh my God, of course he's racist. He's wearing a MAGA hat. He's, right. you know, that's just when it, the shit hit the fan. They radicalize you. Yeah. And then really, and, and there's nothing, and there's really nothing remotely radical, but they, they take someone who's essentially apolitical. I can't tell you how many people I represent have had this journey. Apolitical. They decide we're going to use this person to pivot and get whatever benefit we can for whatever you know agenda we have. And when you know, and then then the destruction process takes part, and, and you are and you and you say, okay, well, I can't be apolitical because politics has moved into my living room, yeah. taken off its shoes and ordered pizza. All right. So political's in my house. And you know you're not you know that you're not looking to the left because the left is what caused all these problems. And you start listening to the people who it was so funny to make Donald Trump joke because he is, you know, he, there are aspects of Donald Trump's personality that make it easy to make fun of him. Right. But you start realizing well, what's exactly the what's the policy? Where's the racist part of this policy again? I'm looking for that. Where's the racist? Where's the anti-Semitic part of his policy? See, and you don't find it. You realize this is this is a scam. It was a scam in my in the in the Castro, you know, in, in, in the uh, backstage at um, I don't know if you have a backstage in, in, a, in a big top. I guess you do. Uh, like an outhouse. <laughs> Right. So now all of a sudden, so now, so now you've, at least now you, you, you can, you can look around for allies and that's when you and I actually started talking. Yeah. Well, and the, you know, the cool thing is when all of that, I mean, I'll be honest though. I mean, it was, it was really hard to go through. Um, it was very, um, and it happens like wildfire and there's not really even time to like, think about what's happening. You know, at first, like it was local blog picked it up. Then, you know, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the big Atlanta paper picked it up. 
And then it was like, I mean, it was in Playbill. It was in American Theater Magazine. And they created this narrative that like, you know, I'd always been this awful monster. And just now is all of this being brought to light. And I mean, it's, I mean, it kind of feels like a death. You know what I mean? It's like, for me, I said, well, I, I guess that was it. You know, like no more theater. I guess it's time for a new chapter. So I mean, I definitely went through kind of a dark phase um, to where I said, I have two decisions. <clears throat> I can disappear or I can use this as an opportunity to kind of get more vocal about my journey and be very transparent about what I'm going through. And so I chose option B and really chronicled this whole journey and was really just upfront and honest about what I was going through. Um, and then, you know, then it started to really affect um, my finances. So this person who had come after me, she compiled all of these statements in a packet and then mailed these and emailed these to every client I had. And then all of my clients started saying, we don't want to work with you anymore. Um, and then it was like, oh my God, like here's my livelihood going out the window. Um, but I, I was smart, you know, I, you know this, legally, you only fight the people that have money. And I, I can't really, I'm not supposed to talk too much about this, but I'll just say I chose to go after a client that I had signed a five-year deal with, and it was a simple breach of contract lawsuit. And buddy, I found the most expensive, best lawyer I could find, and we just nailed them. And I won a major. You mean that you could find you could find in Atlanta? Atlanta. Um, yeah, because I had an entertainment lawyer, but he didn't really deal with litigation. So I'm the most expensive, best lawyer you could find, but I'm not in Atlanta. That but, was the joke there. I knew you, Ron. You know what I mean? So, have you everyone, please, everyone knows Ron Coleman. Everybody knows Gumby. <laughs> Arena until, but yes, you will, you're on speed dial now for the next time. Um, no, there's, there's no more next time. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I chose to, um, you know, pursue. So you, so you had success. Yeah, I had success and I chose. Who do you use? Name the name. Who do you use? I want to hear the name of this good lawyer so I can refer stuff when I'm at, I need stuff in Atlanta. Yeah, her name is Joyce Geist. Fabulous. Because she had, you know, she had a theater background as well. Um, so she she understood everything. Um, and she just said, this is a simple breach of contract. You can't cancel a contract just because people are butthurt about you on Facebook. Um, you know, and when she saw, she's like, what are you doing like? You know, are you like spray painting hate speech on walls? I mean, she just couldn't believe that out that people were responding to these allegations of like, oh, he hurt my feelings, or oh, he didn't give me enough attention. You know, I mean, that was, or he didn't like my headshot because I was black. I mean, they, they were just the most insane allegations. You sound like the like the the theater version of Amy Wax, literally. Because you know, my my wife, you know, wrote a very well-received article about Amy Wax's story at, at University of Pennsylvania Law School. And it's the same kind of thing. Everyone's little petty complaints and two-bit, you know, their own in, inadequacies and their own their own resentments come out. Yep. In the, you just put them in the box labeled woke. And all of a sudden, you're not just a bellyache or, or a complainer or a big old baby. You're a hero of the movement. Yep. All right. And so you get the, you you get this law this great Ms. Geist. She sticks a fork in it. 
she gets you a slam dunk that she should have and, and, and well well deserved that she should get her credit and get named in this incredibly influential podcast. And, and that, that doesn't solve all your problems, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, and I mean, the crazy thing is, you know, going through something like this, like you said, it becomes like, then it's like a competition for like, who had the worst experience working with me, <laughs> you know? And I mean, and the funny thing is like, you know, I was able to read this like, you know, 12 page packet or whatever she put together. And I mean, some of them were so ridiculous. It was like, you know, this like Looney Tune woman I had hired as like an education director. Like some of hers were like, oh my gosh, Brian made me feel guilty for going to like do yoga when I was supposed to be at work or- Brian This proved to me that you're, that you were, maybe it's because you were in Atlanta. You're getting people who have no, no familiarity whatsoever with working in theater. I mean- Oh. I mean, the director looked at me, I mean, let's face it, people, creative people, but especially in theater arts, are temperamental. Oh and also, goodness. and there's so much that you have to account for while producing and directing <laughs> the kind of productions you're describing. All of, and that one actor right there who has four lines in scene one and comes back for, uh, you know, to cross the back of the stage in scene three, they think that you should be the total focus of your emotional life and, and tender loving care. And you're meanwhile asking yourself, are they going to do the, the are they going to get the, the light design finished, you know, in time, in time to us to order, you know, all, all the, uh, you know, all, all the hanging lights that we're going to need. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah. Theater is like the perfect um, arena for snowflakes to come hang out. I mean, you talk about just like the most precious people. Um, yeah, but you know, when I went through all this, it was a time for me to kind of start over. Um, and again, I had the opportunity to disappear or I could use this as an opportunity to keep going. And I mean, I'll tell you, the, the hardest part for me wasn't so much the handful of people like really attacked me. It was all of the people like dear friends I knew that just... Uh -huh. They disappeared, you know, they were, they were so petrified, they would have a similar experience just because of being my friend, they just disappeared, they vanished, and they weren't there when I needed them. That was the truly heartbreaking thing. You heard know? This so many times, I uh, heard this so many times, and it's so heartbreaking, and people realize, of course, that these were not really friends at all. These are people who enjoyed your social presence, and when they benefited from knowing you they knew you but at the end of the day because you know when you said it a couple of minutes ago and for a change i didn't want to interrupt you that you made this you know you chose between either bowing which of course you knew would never be enough anyway they would just keep raising the bar uh or standing up for what you knew was right about yourself and about your ethics and, and what you believe in and the percentage of people who were prepared to do the latter very, very tiny, very, yeah. very tiny, very small, very small. And what it does is it takes people like you and separates them from the vast majority of zombies and non-playing characters that base. Guess what? You know, you have to be kind about them, right? Because they're buying tickets to your show. They're, the, they're, they're, they're paying everyone's bills. It's the majority of people. But they're people who make a difference in this world. They're people who are going to make money. 
And you already knew because you're a theater person that you wanted to make a difference. Everything that you were, everything about theater people, creative theater people, is that they they know they want to leave a mark on the world. And that, yeah. So as a stand now. Yeah, and so like I said, you know, in my heart, I just knew I wanted to keep going. And then the cool thing is, you know, I became very strategic about who I let into my orbit. I was very aware and I held on to a few people and now they're like lifelong best friends. And then people, because I was so vocal about my experience, people started reaching out to me in the theater industry who had had a shared experience. And I started collecting, you know, all of these other canceled artists or people that were choosing not to be part of this woke mob, which yeah. culminated in, you know, James O'Keefe coming into my orbit and him starring in a production of Oklahoma, which was the best comeback story ever, you know? That, and I didn't even realize until I started researching for this, for this interview. And you know, I know James. Oh, yes. Um, and I remember when he was doing this show, thinking to myself, damn, he's a, look, he's young enough to be my son, but he's a grown up and he gets to still do summer stock. This is not fair. This, you know? And then I, I didn't realize that, that this was you and he, that's an, it's an amazing story. So what happens is we end up creating our own world that looks a lot like the world we thought we were going to be in 20 years ago, but it's peopled by people who will not back down to a totalitarian. And this is totalitarian, this whole denunciation stuff. This is right out of, you know, Bolsheviks and Maoism. Once a person is identified as an enemy, all his, all his rivals from the collective farm, all his rivals from the factory, all his rivals from the party cell come out, and every little thing that he ever did is put into a political modality. That's all behind you now. You're now, once again, you're creating. You have an edge of, you lost the idealism that you once had about people and about life, but so was the world. When ultimately, the work is richer. Um, as an artist, we're pulling from our own experiences, right? So, I mean, two years after, almost two and a half years after what I went through, I can say I'm a better artist because of it, because I have so much emotional experience to pull from. Um, and yeah. uh, it was it was the perfect comeback. It was about these group of pioneers that were gritty and they were wanting to make their territory a state. And it felt patriotic. And it felt it just felt like the perfect moment in time of all of these people coming into my orbit that otherwise would not have been there. If I had not gone to this public cancellation, the majority of these cast members would not be in the room. And I'll tell you this, and it's not even, you know, it was called conservative alt-right, but it was really just free thinking artists who did not want to make everything a political statement. We wanted to create art that created conversation and ultimately built bridges. You know, my ultimate goal is to get back to theater being a bridge builder where Democrats, Libertarians, Republicans can share an experience, find common ground, and then also have- That's what art is supposed to be. It's supposed to, it's supposed to speak to you past the context of the writer, 
past the context of his experiences and 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 my my wife who teaches literature basically explained this to me because she sees how the trend now is to talk about you know, to introduce the students before reading a piece of you know of literature who that person was where he came from what his prejudices were no you're learning about the commonality of humanity through art not the opposite and you so now you're able to so that's is that what you mean when you say you're able to be a, a better artist because yeah i mean just because again i pulled from my personal experience and it, the, the art is richer it is darker it is more joyful it has more humor because of the emotional roller coaster i've been on for the past couple of years i'm injecting that directly into my art and the artists I am surrounding myself with, most of them have been on this similar journey. So the emotion is raw. It's ultimately more human-like. Of course, James O'Keefe, okay. I mean, there's a guy who was like the poster boy for what you're describing. <laughs> Would you have cast him if he weren't James O'Keefe? Was he, was he, did he have the right stuff? You can tell me. I mean, ultimately, I was looking, I wanted a star vehicle for Curly. Um, that was the one role we had not cast. And I knew that I wanted someone with star power. This is my first production after being canceled. And we had a mutual friend who had worked, you know, we started doing these like fun music videos, very campy, over the top. And I had a friend who had worked on a music video with him. And when they said, oh my gosh, he's so theatrical and fun, you know, I was Googling about him and I saw in a statement that he said at one point his dream was to be on Broadway. And I thought, hmm, I was like, maybe there is something there. So when I opened this door of conversation with him, you know, I said, James, I've got to see if you can do it. I need to hear you sing. I need to have you do some lines because ultimately, if you suck in this role, it's going to backfire on both of us, you know? So I need to make sure you've got the chops. But here's the thing. I already could tell he had sort of these curly mannerisms. He's like a little bit cheesy. He's like really charming. He's like very handsome. Like, you know, I just thought he really is curly. And then when he auditioned, of course, it was like fully produced. He was on a set. He had like, I mean, it was just the full nine yards. I was like, oh my God, he can sing. He's got it. And now I say, even if he wasn't James O'Keefe, he was the perfect Curly, and he That's just... What be. That's what you want to be. <laughs> Brian, maybe the best episode of this podcast ever. Seriously, I love... Because we have gotten outside of this, you know, talking to other guys who do and gals who do podcasts and people who are, like, just these social media figures, you know, and these are great people, and, men, and so many of them have had similar experiences to yours, and, you know, someone like Amanda Milius, also a creator like you. I love my people. But I feel like I absolutely feel like we. The only reason I am wrapping this up is because we we have to have lost our audience. But I could I could I could definitely do this for another hour. Thank you so much. I'm glad we got this together. You'll have to bring me back again for another hour. Okay, put it on the schedule. Thanks, Brian. We'll talk again soon. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time 
I'm a Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.